Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by Dawn Ziana Moon from Rocks Geek. Hi. Thanks How, for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Cool. Yeah, I know. It's really, we've chatted a bunch. We've just kind of like <laughs> jumped from topic to topic to topic. It's always really fun. Um, so I want to contextualize. It's funny. Um, we, I, so I w- was fortunate enough to be at a panel that you were giving at C2E2 last year. So that was how I was introduced to your work. Um, it was definitely one of those moments where it's just so cool how much art is being made in Chicago and how frequently you can be like, oh shit, there's like something else that's happening that I had no idea was happening. Chicago is the biggest small town, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And all the communities are really, really tightly knit, especially Mm -hmm. when you talk about art communities and nerd communities. Mm -hmm. Nerd community is really tightly knit. Well, and that's the thing that we've already kind of been talking about a bunch about is just how many different niches and spaces that you find you walk through and and work in and like nerd culture especially but like you also were mentioning you have a classical music background which is rad um a lot of people listening are probably like oh cool because we very we, we too infrequently these days talk to classical music people i think <laughs> we started out just talking to classical music people and now it's like once every three months we have a classical musician. I mean, I yeah. will say in all fairness, I don't play classical music anymore. <laughs> I grew up classically trained on piano and played flute for a really long time. But these days I'm a singer-songwriter, so the mm-hmm. music is somewhere between folk and pop, and there's some traditional Chinese music in it, and there's some cool. jazz in it as well. Yeah. So I draw on the classical background, <laughs> but I don't really play classical piano anymore. Well, and that's a thing that <laughs> I am so, so going down a tangent into something conceptual, and we should more contextualize. So can you do me a big favor and introduce our audience to Rockski? Sure. Rocks Geek is a belly dance and fire performance company that I started... Uh, five and a half years ago now. I think it's been almost six at this point. So we primarily do things that are nerd themed, but in the last year we've also put together another show. It's all the Rocks Geek performers. So all the same fire performers and belly dancers. And we now also do a show called Rocks Inferno, which is all of us, but not in cosplay. So there's kind of two parts to that. And with Rocks Geek, with the really nerdy things, for example, I belly dance as a Wookiee. Um, if you've seen that on WGN TV or various places on the internet, it kind of went viral a few years back. Um, it's usually me. The very, very, very first one was somebody else. But for the last, I don't know, four plus years, the Wookiee has been me. I mean, that's the kind of thing when <laughs> once you have that in the repertoire, they're like, well, we got to call Don. Like- <laughs> it really is. Okay, so WGN now, they really, really like the Wookiee. And yeah. I'm really glad that they like the Wookiee because it means they call me up and I get to show up and plug Rocks Geek on TV, which mm. is awesome. So I never want them to not call me to do this. However, <laughs> every once in a while, it'd be nice to show my face in something mm-hmm. and, like, you know, have people know that it's me and what I look like as opposed to just a Wookiee with, you know, uh, the Wookiee has lipstick on on and a belly dance costume and probably 30 pounds of fur and you know a hair flower in which is great but it's it's really hard to breathe in there <laughs> so that's the wookie yeah wow i love doing the wookie but it's it's difficult to be the wookie sometimes yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, that is, that's like weirdly the perfect metaphor for what I, what I was starting to stumble down before I was like, we should contextualize, which is, it is super interesting to me to be a person trained in an art form making art in 2019, because so often you have to do this thing where you're pulling from different influences and different Mm -hmm. formats and and, you know, that th- figuring out how to thrive in that middle ground is both frightening and necessary. And it's so it's it's, uh, you know, it's super interesting because, you know, the story of, you know, of course, we know tons of people that still audition and still do like still want to have the traditional opera career or the traditional, you know, you know, instrumentalists that still that same thing. But it's it's there are more and more people that find themselves in that category where, you know, maybe they have a degree or two from a conservatory and it's it's t- time to learn a new format, try a new thing, you know, expand what that means to have a degree from a conservatory. Um, 
Yeah, I have a theater degree actually, so it's theater and English. Right. And this is what you know. And I've played piano since I was five. But and, and that's even more. So that is. Did you expect to be as an artist? So, uh, sort of figure out how to word this besides just saying like nebulously. That's because that's not true. But do you know what I mean? But like in this space of doing multimedia and doing in a lot of ways yes but i would have never predicted belly dance or the way it looks yeah <laughs> uh music is not too surprising to me because even back in college i was i started a theater company in college and everything that we did for the most part i was very interested in combining lots of different art forms into one production mm -hmm. and so you might come and see dance that was mixed with perhaps my music mixed with um some actual sort of like monologues or something like that and then we would have original writing in the program so you could go home and you sort of had like this mini arts journal to take home with you so i've always been very interested in that and of mixing lots of different things and then myself, my background is, uh, I'm from Singapore originally. I moved to the U.S. when I was five. And I'm Chinese-American, so I have all this kind of weird, like, what culture do I even belong to kind of stuff happening. So mixing a lot of different influences is very natural for me because I'm not actually even sure what my background is supposed to be, really. Mm -hmm. uh, but belly dance is very strange. And mixing <laughs> belly dance with nerd stuff is very strange. Well, and how did you get into belly dancing? So belly dance came about because I was a swing dancer for a really long time. I used to teach lessons. I know I'm all over the place. <laughs> In the best way. The, I, I need to preface by saying because I'm sure I'm in a face. I have a very, I have a very reactive face. Well, it's it's fantastic. Okay, it, it's well, in no way. I mean, like, but, it, but I, I don't know. I feel like something that there's something so like Chicago about that where it's Absolutely. like oh I got into this because I had a hand in this because I needed to pay my rent because I was doing also doing this and doing this mm -hmm. like they're like if, if you talk to anybody like you can call the same person for five different things because right. everybody knows how to do everything so I started as a swing dancer <laughs> and I used to teach lessons in Lindy Hop and blues and I used to travel around and dance with different people in different cities. And it's this very, uh, back then it's changed a little bit now. Now it's more competition focused, but back then it was very social dance and you would just go to another city oh, and cool. get hosted by the local dancers and you put on these gigantic dance events and everyone would have a good time. So when you do that, blues is a partner dance with a lot of body isolations. So it's very, very close. It looks a little bit like Argentine tango. It's the closest thing that most other people know. Um, so when you do that, People like to talk about, like, well, belly dance. Belly dance has more body isolations. And so at one point, okay, I said to myself, I'm going to go to YouTube, a source of all knowledge. Mm -hmm. I'm going to type in belly dance and see what that even looks like. And then I was getting a sense of different styles and what people were doing. Uh, I found this group that I thought was super cool. And then I realized they were in Chicago and that they taught classes. Oh, cool. And then it took me a year to show up. <laughs> but when I finally did, I got hooked, and then I was in class three times a week and got oh, really cool. into it very quickly. Um, eventually, that was a group that I danced with professionally for uh, about eight years and started Rock's Geek in the middle of all of that. Wow. I always have a lot of respect for adults who take lessons in things, because I feel like you know, I'm a person with interests. I'm a person who likes doing things. I can't fathom committing to doing something three times a week outside of the outside of my rigmarole. And so it's like, I just think it's like a cool, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just a cool thing that you, you were like, yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty deeply embedded in this dancer community and I know what that's about, but no, I'm just going to figure out this whole new one. I just think that's really cool. I mean, I think in my case, at least what happens is I'm very obsessive. So when mm. I get into a thing, I'm really into a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that does help for sure. That speaks to my existence. <laughs> Anyone that knows me knows that to that. And it's a, because it's, it's an interesting thing. I think like it can be hard to to be in that space too if you're making arts in Chicago, especially because the like day job, day time art 
artist at night thing is so prevalent here. Um, I think that's everywhere, honestly. It's mm. really, really hard to make money in art. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the open secret that people outside of the arts don't realize... I feel I mean, People in the arts, I think, mostly know this. People outside don't seem to realize that the vast, vast majority of full-time artists who are not teaching as their primary source of income are supported really, really heavily financially by a spouse or a family member or mm-hmm. something along those lines. It's really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 especially interesting because Chicago. I think the thing for me is I always find that Chicago has that space of there are so many people here that have found a degree of success, but are still not like societally, nationally successful. Air quotes like, and that is that's something that we talk about a lot of of figuring out what success means a figuring out if the city of Chicago has a metric for that like because mm. you know what does it what does that mean and uh and b if it's something that's worth as an individual to even kind of strive for when so many folks are in that category that Maureen was talking about like because you know I think that and hearkening back to the idea of being a a uh, in, trained intensely in, in a thing, it's so uh, for the for the person that is raised and has trained in the arts, it's so easy to think I need to put my ten thousand hours in a thing, mm-hmm. and to to not to to not be focused like unifocused on one thing can feel like you're sacrificing that. Is that something that you've ever had? I think... Definitely, it's hard, right? And it it feels like if you're doing art at a professional level, I wouldn't even say full-time, but at a professional level, 90% of your art time ends up being doing things like marketing and promotion and administrative stuff. It's not actually making the art, and that only gets to be the 10% of your time, Mm -hmm. which is even worse if you have a day job, then Mm -hmm. it's an even tinier chunk of time you're able to do things. But it also feels like success is really a moving target. So Rocks Geek has been featured like... In the Daily Mail and the UK had a little contingent at one point that was putting out a lot of press about us. And we've been featured in like newspapers in New Zealand. But, you know, we're doing little theater shows in Chicago in this very intimate space. It's not that big. Um, or I know writers who... I, I think it's a bigger problem than Chicago. It might seem just very apparent to us because we are in a major city yeah. and we know a lot of artists. But I was at a conference a couple of years ago called XOXO, and one of the people who was speaking at that was Lucy Bellwood, who is a comics artist. And she was talking about, she was getting reviews, and I believe it was the New York Times book review reviewed her her comic, um, and she was on book tour, and it was really great. And so, you know, this high level of success that a lot of people don't get to, even in that. And at the same time, she was living because she was on food stamps. And yeah. that just seems to be the new normal, which is disturbing, but I'm not entirely sure what to do about that. Yeah, that's de- it's definitely an organizational piece, too. And I mean, that's, it's, you know, we, that's the whole idea of, I think that's why I always like to ask and talk about the uh, tangible piece of living as an artist, of figuring out how, first off, figuring out what success means, and and figuring out, you know, how one spends their days, and, and we always like to ask about that administrative side, because there's a, it's a, it's a thing where, you know, even our audience is a, a lot of people are, find themselves as administrators of a thing, and then working a day job, or, or you know, and it's, that experience is so, it's becoming so relatable, like, as a person that has gotten obsessed with like what does relatability mean, I've found that more often than not, a person can relate to having a project that is their passion that they've had to sacrifice for, and that's the that that identity is one that has not really been 
acknowledged in a meaningful way, at least in a way to organize it. Yeah, I, I think, think we is... still tell young people and people who are in school, oh, you know, and making it means you're doing this full time and you don't mm -hmm. have a day job. And I think that sets people up for really unrealistic expectations. It sets you up for a lot of crises. Um, whereas I, I, for a while I was doing a lot of mentoring of college students and I would try to tell them, it is not a shameful thing to take a day job. You might mm -hmm. have to take a day job. Frankly, you probably will have to take a day job unless you can find somebody else to just give you money. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's just, you know, the reality of what it is. And it's not fun, but if you want to still be able to make art, that's probably going to be the way that you have to do things. So what kind of day job can you get so that you can sort of look at yourself in the mirror and still be basically okay? Um, and okay with who you are and what you're doing, but then also still manage to make time for your art because that's the thing that's really important. I think that saying you're setting yourself up for a lot of crises is like, for some reason that like really resonated with me because I feel like when I first left college, I was working these jobs where I just like had these moments of, oh my God, I can't believe I just put all of that work into this and now I'm doing this. Like, I can't believe that I have to... But if you're, if you're set up for that, if you're told during the process that, hey, like, yes, you're putting so much work and you're putting all of your time and resources into this, but it's not going to pay off immediately and you have to be kind to yourself in the process. And I think even beyond immediately... A friend of mine, uh, Jim C. Hines, is a relatively well-known uh, science fiction fantasy writer, and he's got this blog where every year he does uh, a post about, this is how much money I've made in the last year, because he wants to be really transparent. He's got, I believe it's 13 books out. Um, they're mostly published by traditional New York publishers. And this last year he made, I believe it was, and I could be slightly off on the number, but I believe the number he made was 34K this year. That's how much money he made. 13 books, mostly traditionally published. And a couple of years ago, he did a survey of 400 novelists asking them how much they made. Um, and the average was higher than you might have thought, given the number from him, but it's because there are a handful of people who are doing really well who sort of pulled the average up. Mm. If you look at the median, which is sort of a more useful number for that, I want to say the median was something like 17K. It's not a lot of money, and that's yeah. for people who are, you know, getting the dream of getting published by a major publisher. Yeah. I think that... I think that what... I think that talking and communicating to people currently in school is so important. Like mentoring is so important because I think that our generation was really misled. Yeah. Find <laughs> your passion, do your passion and everything will be okay. And I, I mean, I've been there. I've been burned out. Yeah. Very, very recently I've been burned out having, you know, a day job and also doing art and yeah. too many other things. But we set people up for more burnout and more stress and frustration if we don't at least try to give them a realistic picture of what everything is going to look like. Well, so as a person who has done many panels and has spoken many times and who has, you know, founded companies and has a degree of things that are, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, tangibly, like, oh, that person's successful. Like, was there a, has there been a, a, a switch turned at some point for you where you're like, oh, I made it? Or is it, or how do you, how are you? <laughs> I would like to know what making it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Every day I'm like, what am I even doing? Should mm -hmm. I just stop doing all of this? Because the, the work to reward ratio is frankly terrible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. That that's me being super honest. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, don't know if making I, it exists anymore unless it's, you know you're basically a star and that's just that's literally the one in a million thing and has nothing to do with talent or skill or hard work. It's a lot of luck at that point and a lot of you know, maybe you just happen to know somebody with a lot of money or maybe your parent could support you part of the way until you got through or one of my obsessions in the last year was um, figuring out what it means to be a YouTube creator right now. Hmm. Because it seems like, at the time, not knowing anything about it, it seemed like one of those things that it was a platform that 
um, you could do the thing of of uh, not needing traditional means to be successful at it, to be air quote successful. But it, it very quickly re- it, I realized it was that same thing of that yeah you have a couple people that become like multi because the the person I always think of immediately is like do you know Jenna Marbles? Oh, I've heard of her, yeah. Where it's the same thing where, like, she's one of the first people on YouTube and became, like, stupid famous, and now that's her whole job. But that's, like, she's, like, one of 20 people or, or 30 people that find themselves in that position. And, you know, I it's a thing all the time where someone will ask me about podcasting or something. And they'll say, like, oh, you know, what's the secret? Like, how do you do this thing? And then it's your it's your livelihood like how do you how is it that this is more successful than any other thing or you know whatever but the reality is is like like anything else these things that are multimedia these things that are like cutting edge and technology or whatever it takes hard work if you if you do manage it 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 is not and it's it's not going to be like you're a millionaire now you know it's it's an interesting thing that we put onto a weird pedestal the person who's, you know, the the sci-fi writer who has 13 books published. Like, that guy must be loaded. And, like, no, he's not. And that's, that, the whole, like, talking about how much money people make is such an important radical act, I think, of, like, being able to realize that there are structural problems at play. There are structural problems, and then... I see the problems with, so, you know, being a musician, it's much, much worse, actually, than being a dancer, because people still do have an idea that they should pay to go see a performance in a theater, but they won't pay that same money for your local musician, even if they have some relative success. They will pay that money for Madonna, and Madonna will get easily $200 Mm -hmm. a ticket. People won't even think about it. But it's almost impossible to get somebody to pay $5 to go see a local band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and they get, like, pissed off if somebody at the door asks for a $5 cover, and they're like, oh, whatever, I'll just go somewhere mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And it's like, all right. <laughs> there, there are certain art forms that we have devalued mon- monetarily, because I think it was, as a society, we at least think that we still value music. People listen to music all the time. They walk around with their headphones, and there's constantly music on but they don't want to pay for it. It's much easier to sell a t-shirt at a concert than it is to sell a CD, which is pretty messed up when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, I want to I wanna come out of this. The, <laughs> this is a, it's a fantastic conversation. Um, I'm gonna, it's going I'm to some gonna, dark places. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a hard left. Just end... <laughs> Thank you. Like it's been fantastic. Um, what I want to ask about though is um, partially related. I but I also think it's really interesting the the niches aspect. Um, you know the thing that I remember when we first covered C two E two. I had one of these th- thoughts of like, well, you know, we've been covering opera. And to some extent, we were covering theater at that point, and to some extent, we were covering other art forms. Um, and I just remember thinking, like, there must be. And you know, I had friends that that were like steep into nerd culture, that cosplayed, that you know, um, we play D anD D. You know, a few people that do too, board games, like all these things. I was like, it feels like though that there is a trend to some extent of people that find themselves in one niche audience being more willing to learn about and become a part of another niche audience. And I'm curious if that's a thing in your niches that you've come from now coming to kind of more (laughs) mainstream niche audiences, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but like, like comics are in a weird point right now where there's a degree to like, you know, Marvel's, makes the the uh like biggest movies of all time right now and it's you know it's an it's a weird thing where uh yeah that so the actual question is like do you have you found that in your media like formats that you practice um there is a degree to which um 
they're related to each other and there's a degree of overlap or do you do you find that those audiences are more separate there's a little bit of overlap i wouldn't say that there's a lot one of the things that so the the founding of rocks geek happened because i was already a professional dancer and I went, this was another late night YouTube search. I said, geek belly dance. Has anybody done that? Because I've always been a nerd. Mm -hmm. I grew up reading Asimov and, you know, watching Star Wars and all of these things. Yeah, my dad handed me uh, Asimov books when I was in elementary school, which is probably way too young for that. But I loved them and thought they were great. (laughs) My dad did the same thing, except not with me. He handed them to uh, the kid who lived across the street from me. Because he was like, he was like, you're weird, I can tell. Here's some Asimov. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which, that's the same um, Alex, right? Who yeah. we had on the podcast to talk about the Mushroom Bible 200 yeah. episodes ago. Yeah, he he, uh, he wrote um, a book that he is calling the Mushroom Bible. Is it and all about mushrooms? Yeah. Awesome. And it's uh, he dedicated it to Isaac Asimov. <laughs> <laughs> like psychotropic mushrooms. Oh, not, oh, not okay. Like, got not, it. Not got like it. That makes more sense. Yeah, no. Yeah. It's, it's not like he's like, and here... <laughs> Are you know, porcini mushrooms. No, it's like those kind of... I could see that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've always been a nerd, and I wondered if anybody had combined belly dance with geek things. And at that point, some people had, but every example, at least, that showed up, you know, six-ish years ago on YouTube was frankly terrible. There were a lot of people who were doing cosplay, lots of slave Leia's, lots of Orion slave girls, and they were belly dancing at a sort of very poor beginner student level mm-hmm. and doing that at conventions, which, you know, I don't want to knock anything to people who want to just perform in various places. That's fine. But the problem with belly dance is that people don't actually know what belly dance looks like at all. So then they would go to this con and they would see Slave Leia, who is really attractive and in this skimpy costume, but belly dancing at a, a really poor level. And, the, you know, that person would like win cosplay awards and those kinds of things. Meanwhile, people don't actually know what the actual art form at a, at a high level is supposed to look like. So I thought, okay, we need to fix this. <laughs> so. <laughs> I got together. It turns out a lot of belly dancers are nerds. And so I got a bunch of the dancers that I performed with who are already professionals and said, hey, let's put together this theater show and let's do the the concept of geek belly dance justice. And let's do this with a, everybody in the show is going to be a professional dancer and everybody's going to be a nerd. And then my friend who was a great fire performer said, hey, do you want fire? And I was like, yes, because who doesn't want fire? (laughs) And so that became, that one night theater show became Rock's Geek. But that was, I was trying to address an issue because I saw that belly dance is a very, very small sort of insular community. And it's, it's a really warm, welcoming community, particularly the style that I do, which is tribal belly dance, which... Uh, it's it's a very fusion form. It's a modern form of belly dance with things like hip hop and flamenco and classical Indian dances and jazz and ballet and all these other things kind of thrown into it. And it grew up in California. So it's cool because it's very flexible, but people, again, they just don't know what it looks like and they don't know, you know, even what more traditional forms of belly dance look like at a high level. I said, we really need to fix this. That's an interesting... Well, and it's an interesting thing because... A lot of people have heard the words together, belly dancing, you know, right. but there people is... people think of things like Shakira. Right. And there's a, there is a deep, like, authentic tradition of, of doing, of belly dancing. And it's, it's an interesting... So, um, I want to first ask you if you can plug anywhere that people can learn about authentic, well, obviously your work, but also just like, is there a good YouTube channel? Like, <laughs> like... Um, it's kind of scattered, I will say. So belly dance tends to split into two sort of camps. There's the quote-unquote traditional, and I say quote-unquote traditional because traditional belly dance, anytime you see it performed on a stage, um, it's not traditional to the original folk dances. What happened was belly dance, uh, Hollywood took belly dance over in some ways. And so they, they started, you know, putting belly dance into movies mm-hmm. and people went to the Middle East looking for the belly dance costuming and that sort of thing that they were used to seeing in movies. And so then dancers in Egypt had to adapt to that in order to draw those audiences in. 
Oh. Yeah, so there's, from the very beginning, there's been a lot of interplay and a lot of traditional styles of belly dance now have actually quite a lot of ballet built into them. That's absolutely <laughs> fascinating because I think that, I think that in a lot of, I think that in a lot of artistic traditions that have a specific, that have a specific source, I think that people, if they're not careful, kind of tread on into like cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. territory. But it's really interesting that like from the source, they were just kind of like, okay. And then like adapted to make it like, yeah. So the fuller history is, you know, there were these folk dances, Mm -hmm. right. That were done in the middle East. And then belly dance, like the word belly dance actually comes from most popularly, I mean, it existed actually probably in English before the Chicago World's Fair, but it mm-hmm. became popularized at least at the Chicago World's Fair. Um, wild. Wild, right. Uh-huh. Well, and it was literally to highlight the sort of exoticism of it. And it was to make it sound kind of like this sort of scandalous thing because the word in Arabic, um, it's rock sharky which means uh, dance of the East or dance of the Orient or mm. Oriental dance, if you're going to straight translate that in, into English. Mm-hmm. But belly dance was a term that was floating around a little bit in English and really became popular at the World's Fair. They really built on the sort of idea of scandal in that. So mm-hmm. all of these people were at the World's Fair watching, you know, this very seductive dance that, and it doesn't look anything like you would even expect to see now. She was wearing far more clothing and, you know, <laughs> But it was a thing that captured the popular imagination at that point. So then in the U.S., belly dance became this thing where all of these vaudeville groups were doing something they called belly dance. And of course, they had no training or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just kind of doing it and calling it belly dance to the point where even in Europe, um, I think it was the Folie Belger that tried to get like actual Middle Eastern dancers to come from the Middle East and perform their dances and they were booed off the stage. So then <laughs> this is an incredible story. So then the, the, the producer of that show realizing that people didn't actually want to see, you know, real authentic as dance du ventre, which is a uh, belly dance in French. Um, didn't want to see that crossed that off of the poster and said, fake belly dancers, essentially. <laughs> and then all the crowds came back and they loved it. So belly dance is this very, very weird tradition in the West. And then it goes back to the Middle East because now people are used to seeing all of that coming from the West and they go and be tourists in the Middle East. And then they're expecting to see something a little bit more like that. And some of those things get brought over there. And so then that style has to adapt in order to get the dollars. Do you know what I really want more of in my life? Um, more people not from Western civilization talking about Western civilization. That's always fascinating <laughs> to me. Like any, any time that I'm always, that I ever like hear about Western civilization from, I'm always like, wow, I'm just, this is like, because it's so not talked about like right. that, that it, you know, coming up in American schools, like the way that we have just, you know, either <laughs> pillaged or like, made a vacation out of other countries is, like, fucking wild. Like, it's just <laughs> terrible. Like, it's, like... Uh, anyway, um... No, because we had that... Because I'm definitely <laughs> having... This is now the second time this has happened on the show where I'm having a moment where I'm like, oh, my God, my whole life, my whole understanding of the world is just propaganda. That's all it is. <laughs> <I'm>, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, I, that's definitely a thought, but I, I don't know what... what in the last few years, what was the turning point where I was like, oh my god, we're living in a propaganda state. Like, that's... <laughs> that's a thing. Um, but, uh, anyway, that's a, that's another deep turn. The thing that I really um, wanted to ask about, because I think this is there's a degree of relatability to this conceptually, which is, it's very interesting to me, the... Um, the... Buzz... Like, we talk a bit about buzzwords, and a lot of times we'll talk about it with like accessibility. A lot of companies will be like, this is accessible because I don't know. And, and not have actual accessibility standards, like, you know, handicap accessibility. Um, we'll rather just say, I just learned that, that that's a thing that people don't want. That's a, that's a, uh, it's, you should say disabled instead of handicap. Hmm. 
Huh. For, anyway, sorry. Another tangent. The question, the actual question, let me get to it, is um, how is for you the balance of something that is has become a buzzword, like belly dancing, and in, in a very cliche, uh, not true to its origins kind of way, and the educational and authentic aspect, like, is there a balance, do you, do you see those two pieces in your work? Is there a balance that happens? Do you lean more towards one one over the over the other? Does that make sense? Yeah, there's there's a lot wrapped up in that question for me. There there's one aspect of even the word belly dance, which most people who speak English will say belly dance because that is the term that is most familiar to people. So mm-hmm. if you don't say belly dance, people don't even know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, some chunk of people try to move towards things like Oriental dance because it, or possibly even Middle Eastern dance because that feels like it carries a little bit less baggage, but then people don't know what that is. So you run into the this little bit of a problem, especially mm-hmm. if you're trying to do things like get people to a show or get people to classes. Um, I tend to take the approach of using the word belly dance because it is familiar and then just trying to explain that to people and trying to explain to people that... So the style that I do isn't even, you know, traditional in any way. Um, personally, traditional belly dance is not... Um, interesting to me as an artist in terms of something that I want to do. Like, you can find really great examples of it. We have Mm -hmm. guest performers with our group sometimes who do more traditional styles, but that's not personally a thing that I train in. Um, I'm more interested in this more modern style, which we call tribal fusion or sometimes just fusion, where you take some of those Middle Eastern dances, you combine them with Ratanatyam and flamenco and hip hop and becomes this very American dance. So that dance, the stuff that I trained in, grew up in California. And I like to explain that, you know, this is not authentic or traditional in any way, whatever you you even think that means, but it is very much a living art form. It's a living, breathing art form that changes a lot. And even in the time that I started dancing, the styles, and I've been belly dancing now for, I think, nine years. Um, the styles have changed even from when I started to now. Mm-hmm. So the, the things that people are doing costuming-wise are different. The kinds of conversations people are having about things like cultural appropriation look a little bit different than they used to even nine years ago. Yeah, and th- that's, <laughs> the, that's exactly like I was thinking about the, the, the question because the next kind of degree to this is that I think that in that line of thought, there's like an opening the door factor to it mm-hmm. where more people are learning about about the um, the historical significance and also the the radical aspect of having the moments that we've had and I'm sure many other people born into Western civilization have had of you know uh, in being introduced to a thing from the familiarity cliche and then and then that that opening the door to like, oh, wow, like, I learned about this thing when I was 10, but now I'm, you know, in my 20s or something and learning this, the layers to it. Mm-hmm. That isn't... It's That piece is really interesting because I think it can be really easy to have these conversations and uh, make someone feel... Uh, I'm trying to think. I figure out how to word this because there's so it's so easy for this to just sound trashy. <laughs> like there's ways to have these conversations that a person can feel inadequate, right? Like if you have someone walk into the room and they have that base understanding and maybe don't understand the like full cultural significance or or things like that. Like is does it does it feel a thing? Does it come upon you to like? be more educational and lean towards more of of i i don't know do you get what what i'm asking here like i mean i tend to do a lot of education because i Mm -hmm. think that that's really important and 
I personally am very comfortable with things like public speaking and I guess have been okay taking that as a role upon myself doing things like panels and mm-hmm. such. I will say this is not for everybody to have to do that work because it is tough. It is a lot of unpaid labor that's extra in addition to the other things that you do. Um, but I think it's uh, an important thing to, that, to have somebody do it. Absolutely. Um, and it's a thing that I'm fairly well suited to do. So I don't mind going out and telling people, you know, more things along the lines of history and helping them to kind of understand what's going on now. Um, and I also have this background that is very... So Singapore is, you know, it's a it's a tiny, tiny country in Southeast Asia. The people who are native to the area really are going to be even very different than the people... Singapore is 80% ethnically Chinese, which is what I am. But the Chinese are not native to that area. So every Chinese person who is in Singapore, if you go back enough generations, like they were immigrants to that area. And there's a long tradition of what we call the Straits Chinese or the Pranakan, who are ethnically Chinese people who have been in like the Straits of Malacca area for long enough that their culture became a fusion of Malaysian culture and Chinese culture. And so that's also like half of my heritage. But then Singapore, to add another layer on top of that, was a British colony for many, many years. So my parents are both native speakers of English. I'm a native speaker of English. Uh, My dad went to a school when he was growing up that basically prided itself at teaching the kids English really well and having them speak terrible Chinese because nobody cared as much about whether they were good at Chinese at that point. In general, in people in Singapore don't speak Mandarin Chinese natively. A lot of them learn it, uh, for the last couple of generations, people have learned it in school and because the government has seen that China is doing really well and it's going to be very important to the, you know, the world and economically mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So they want to make sure that their population is able to communicate with China, hence learning Mandarin. But a lot of people actually would speak dialects before that happened and a lot of people speak English. And so it's this very strange kind of fusion of cultures there, too. And there's also a really strong influence from, like, Sri Lanka and India and all the various other countries like Thailand and Vietnam and Southeast Asia. So I come from this crazy melting pot of a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Michigan when I was five years old. (laughs) (laughs) And I had no Asians around me at that point, really, outside of my family. So I grew up very much in white culture in a lot of ways, Mm. but then also having this kind of strange amalgamation of a very particular type of Asian culture as well. So I relate a lot to these things that are just combining stuff from a lot of different places. It's like cultural translation in a way, which is so interesting to me. And, And also, you know, the degree to you're exactly right the like emotional labor degree is so is such an important thing to like recognize and the the reason why too i'm kind of harkening back and and touching more on this is because i i'm always uh wanting to provide a platform to a discussion of what what someone that maybe finds themselves in a similar position like how they can know that they're suited for that kind of thing, like mental health wise and things like that. And like, um, you know, to, cause that is, it's an, it's an interesting thing, right? Like where, you know, your most well-meaning white person can be as educated as they can on the topic, but they can still never fully get it. Mm-hmm. But also to, to tokenize or to put someone in a position that they're not comfortable with is also fucked up. And so it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's an it's a thing where yeah i just i guess so here's an actual question um what? you should get that tattooed across your forehead <laughs> yeah i know for for real um so here's my actual question <laughs> sorry uh <laughs> if you could give yourself from 10 years ago advice before you started getting into this line of work what would that advice look like i honestly have no idea <laughs> I don't know if I have advice to give to my tenure, 10 years ago self on this. Uh, I don't know what I would say. That's, that's wild. I mean, that's, I mean, that also, I mean, it makes sense. I think that when you're in the, when you're like 
in the in the thick of it and in the middle of it i i find it hard to look back and think like oh what would i have mm-hmm. done differently what would i like what would i have said to myself cuz it's like i'm in it now and like every decision i made has brought me here right and it's new right like it's it's a new place that we find ourselves in that these conversations have been given a platform and that I mean, it's nice because these conversations are different now than I think it was seven years ago that I started speaking at C2E2 on a regular basis. And seven years ago, we were trying to have conversations about the, the, the panel that we, the first panel we did was the myth of the fake geek girl. And at the very least, it's encouraging that we're not having that same conversation right. anymore. We've moved further. Yeah, uh, we a... weren't able to even talk about what it meant to be Asian American in geek culture. That is such a, a bummer of a panel. It... <laughs> <laughs> it really, like, very deeply bums me out. Oh my but god! It's oh my god! I... Great story that you'll appreciate in this case. Okay, so it was Friday afternoon at C two E two. The panel was—I don't remember if it was the next day or basically—I was walking around with a panelist badge. Mm-hmm. Friday afternoon, C2E2. And, you know, having conversations with various people who had booths and things. And one of the vendors looked at me and said, oh, you have a panelist badge. And I said, yeah. And he said, is that yours or did you borrow it? Oh, oh my right. God. I, would I like hope to you're think listening. That that I hope so whoever that now. is, for some reason, I have no <laughs> idea how you would have found it. But I hope that you're hearing just a bunch of people groan at you right now. The most like, amazing thing was I got to talk about that moment in the panel. Yeah. Later, right. Yeah. <laughs> so ridiculous. Is that yeah. yours or did you borrow it? Right. What? Who borrows a panelist? No. Oh. Just assume that the person has the right badge and ask them about it. You yeah. Know? Sorry. This this is my boyfriend's badge. I just thought I would look really cute in it. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. <sighs> but it's encouraging that the conversations are not so much that anymore. They yeah. pop up on Twitter periodically, but that's not where the bulk of the conversation is. Yeah. I feel like we, at this point, generally understand that women can be nerds and mm-hmm. are more comfortable with that as a concept. And now we're talking also about things like racism in geek culture in a way that we were not talking about seven years ago. So I'm at least encouraged that the conversations are changing and shifting. So while there's at the same time, you know, right now, a lot of pushback on things like racism and xenophobia Mm -hmm. and immigration and all of these things, that's... That stuff is happening because we have pushed the conversation in another way. So there's at least a little bit of hope that we're not stuck still at the same point we were seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because that, that panel seven years ago, four, seven years ago, was a radical act. It was a radical panel at that point. I don't think anybody, I could be wrong, but I don't think that anybody at C2E2 had talked about something like that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, I don't know, I, I think, I guess I'm like, throwing your question back in, not in any aggressive way, but I think it's interesting because I, th- I think that any advice that someone would have to give to someone in 2009 wouldn't really make sense for the, the climate. Absolutely. No, you're right. I mean, like, I it's, but, and it's also just a thing of... So how was 2009 10 years ago? That's so weird that to me. That is weird. That is weird. <laughs> That is super weird. Also, never think about how long ago the prequels were released or Jurassic Park was released or mm-hmm. something like this because yeah, you start feeling really old really fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I guess the thing, too, for me is I think there's a degree to which, like, the thing I was thinking about when you were talking about what it's like to have that panel from seven years ago and the work that's being done now specifically on racism and in, in, in geek culture, um, it's like... 101 v like i always think of like gender studies courses Mm -hmm. where it's like 101 is just like hey maybe women are people (laughs) like (laughs) and then like 401 is like okay let's talk about this specific culture and and kind of and and this specific you know existence or or whatever and, and really flesh it out but in all of that the piece that i'm i'm kind of more trying to uh in my own personal practice especially as a journalist is is to recognize that there's a degree to which people there's um, it's like you're a cultural professor professor at a certain point without the salary of a professor. You know what I mean? Because like, right. you're you have to have on deck. 
your 101, hey, maybe women are people. (laughs) But then also be able... and, And so that's an interesting thing to me, especially because, you know, because we talk so much about what it means to have gotten to where you're at, you know? But that that piece, you know, being a, a cultural, because it's not like a, maybe professor is the wrong word, because it's almost a degree to like, I always think of how weird it is to, to think about musicology, and like the history of, of music and, and things like that, or like the history of a, of a given thing. And the thought of like, being an academic of geek culture, or an academic of belly dancing, or, you know, is such a, that these niche spaces, here we go, finally getting to what I'm, what my point is, these niche spaces, the idea of being an academic in them is so not uh, verbalized and, and identified that... There actually are academics in these areas, though, right? That's absolutely. not new. There's Paul Booth, who's over at DePaul University, who does a lot of classes on various aspects of nerd culture and what he does. Um, I'm giving a talk at at uh, DePaul, I think. Yeah. I, I give talks periodically at various um, universities on things that are related to that as well. So there's more of that happening now than there was even, I think, 10 years ago within mm-hmm. the like academic space, which again is encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that We'd be remiss to not talk at all about the show you have coming up. <laughs> so this has been fascinating, but I do I like want to make sure that we get some information. So Rax Geek has a show coming up. We do. We now are at Under the Gun Theater. Every month we do alternating shows between Rox Geek and Rox Inferno, which is mostly the same sort of a thing, but without the cosplay. And so, the, frankly, it's a little bit easier to dance. <laughs> <laughs> Both shows are really, really fun. <laughs> They're great, whether or not you're a nerd or whether or not you're into belly dance. It's a really good time. Uh, so the next show that's coming up is March 8th. And so they're always going to be second Fridays at 10 p.m. So March 8th, which is a Friday night under the Gun Theater, which is over in Wrigleyville. It's the very old Lynx Hall space before they moved where they are now. Oh, wow. Shout out Lynx Hall. Yeah. Cool. Love Lynx Hall. Um, so I'm, you know... What can people expect? Like what? Like if like if a person is interested in this, this, and this, like, oh, what is my like? I I know what I'm asking. I'm just like being. It's, it's, it's <laughs> we will have a belly dancing wookie. That will be me. Oh, good. <laughs> that is good. the thing that will happen. So if you're a fan of WGN, <laughs> head over to the show. Head over to the show. <laughs> we will have lots of fire spinning. All of the acts are not exactly finalized yet, but there will be. Uh, Where's Waldo? Will make an appearance. Um, the the company is very cool because it is majority Asian American, which is also pretty rare in performance spaces, and it's also majority LGBTQ. So not everybody has either identity, even. But mm-hmm. it's kind of great to have a group that is majority all of those things because it provides a little bit more of a. I mean, we work really hard to make sure that the audience feels very welcome, no matter who they are. I will say though, to the point about accessibility, it is on the second floor and there's no elevator. So I'm really, really sorry. The theater just doesn't have that. Um, our old theater did, and that was nice, but we don't have an elevator. But anything else we can do to help with accommodations, <laughs> we will 100% do. I mean, working within the infrastructure of old Chicago buildings, it's, you know, y- y- it's yeah. hard for mm-hmm. sure. It's a lot of fun. We are giving away a couple of passes, full weekend passes to C2E2, cool. which we've been talking a bit about. You can get nerd cocktails, which we've specially developed with the theater bar. And so that's pretty cool. You can drink cool. a Romulan ale. You can drink a drink called I Drink and I Know Things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. Perfect. Uh, I believe we will be having a Pyramid Head from Silent Hill a belly dance piece which is going to be pretty awesome. I've seen the costume and I'm very excited about that one. Oh my gosh. Nice. That's so cool. Nice. Yeah, it's a monthly show, but it is different every month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to... So, and it's... Is Rax Geek, like, 
a set troupe or and you mentioned that you have people guesting but like are there auditions like like how how did this troupe come together there's a core group of us um that are fire people and belly dancers and then i do both so i kind of hover (laughs) between you know if the show needs more fire i do more fire in my acts and if i need to do more belly dance i do that um so there's the there's a core handful of us that are basically at every single show unless somebody can't make it for some reason and then we invite guest performers to come and play with us as well nice nice that's really cool yeah we have a few minutes left wow We've actually gone a little over. Sorry about that. That that's been really fun. That f- this flew by. This was great. It really did, and it's just it's super. Uh, you're a good talker. Ooh. Very smart. <laughs> um, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. I'm glad. So the last thing we do with all of our guests is a one minute plug for anything they have upcoming. Sometimes that can sound redundant or like. <laughs> but but I, I would be, we would be remiss if we didn't give do it again. Um, Sometimes that can be things like letting people know about an upcoming performance. Otherwise, uh, we love hearing shout-outs to other folks that are doing dope work. Any, um, and, or any media that you're personally consuming, self-care or otherwise. Music, movies, TV shows, things like that. I can plug a few things. So in addition to the shows that we've been talking about at Under the Gun Theater once a month. Uh, so you can go to rocksgeek.com, R-A-K-S, geek.com, uh, or rocksinferno.com. We'll find Rocks Inferno as its own show as well. You can also check out my music, which is donzianamoon.com, D-A-W-N-X-I-A-N-A-M-O-O-N.com. And there's a very cool music video if you go onto YouTube right now where it's my music. I'm singing a song in Chinese. It's my reworking of a traditional Chinese song featuring Rocks Geek spinning fire and belly dancing. And there's circus aerials in it as well. So you can go check that out on YouTube. Hell That's yeah. Really I think cool. it's the first thing that pops up if you type in Don on a Moon. Awesome. But the music video is for a song called Beautiful Flowers Under a Full Moon. I gotta actually bring it up on that. I was gonna ask you about this after. Have you ever been to the full moon jams at... So most of the people in Roxy who spin fire have run the full moon jams for some number of years. Wild. Yeah. Well, because it's right there. We, it's right there. Uh, we go occasionally because it's, it's fun. Like, it's we, a cool thing. We, like, like, happened upon it one, like, one month. We were, one like... full moon. Yeah. yeah. Of Quinn, we were just, like, taking a walk down by the lakefront and then we were just, like, fire? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's a good time. Yeah. It's no, really it's cool. really cool. From a performer perspective, you just show up and you play with whatever happens to be around or that you brought. Sometimes I'll borrow other people's props and play with their props instead. Mm-hmm. The energy is like a, a good one. Like it's a it's a really like organic uh and that sounds so cliche, but like it's uh it's one of those things that you're just like, I'm glad I live in a city, you know? Yeah, it's really fun. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Daniel Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that. The first is to head over to scopymag.com. That's our website. We post all of our articles and podcast episodes there. Uh, you can also head over to uh, on, on social media. We have a Facebook page called Scopy Magazine. We also have a Facebook group that we love and adore called Sounding Board, where we talk about local arts, local politics, and astrology memes. Otherwise, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr under Scopy Mag. And you can find the podcast, the one that you're listening to right now in most podcast places, including Google Play, iTunes Podcasts, and Radio Public under Scopy Radio. And I'm here, as always, to talk about the importance of subscribing. If you head to our website, scopymag.com, and go to our subscribe page, there are a couple ways that you can do that. The first is to sign up for email blasts. This is huge because even though we post across social media platforms, Facebook buries our content. So if you want to see 100% of what we're doing and not just 30% of it, you should sign up for those email blasts. The second thing you can do is become a member. For as little as $5 a month, you can help us keep our lights on and pay our artists. If you're in a position to give, there are some cool incentives associated with it. So you should consider it especially we just we're going to be announcing this on social in the next couple days but if you sign up for five dollars a month we also have merch scopymag.com slash store we have like really dope shirts it's going to be your i'm not going to steal your shit Mm -hmm. but um but what our five dollar a month thing this is me announcing it and we'll announce it on social is um 
you will get a five dollar uh, uh, discount for all merch things if you sign up for five dollars. So that five dollars a month will go towards anything you get, any coffee mugs or anything. And trust me when I say there's going to be a lot more stuff going up on that store. So mm-hmm. you'll wanna you'll want that five dollar discount for the rest of your life. Also, uh, if you are a business or an entity or just have something fun to say and would like to advertise with us, please feel free to reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So, give a little, give a lot, and if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep.